Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we have uh, Taylor Westcote, uh, entrepreneur in residence here at SeedCamp and uh, a guru of all things product, um, a guru of all things UX as well. And I think one of the things that we want to talk about today, um, aside from the usual things um, that we like to cover uh, about who he is as an individual, is also a new idea that he's putting together called the Behavioral Roadmap. And the idea behind the Behavioral Roadmap is to challenge the way that product roadmaps, uh, product roadmaps rather, have been done in the past. And this, this new format could potentially be very useful for, for early stage founders. So let's kick it off um, the way that we always do, Taylor, is, is starting uh, a little bit with the, the man, the man behind the myth. Uh, where, what was the first thing that, that you did? Uh, what did you study in college? So what was the first thing you did after college? But what was it that you studied in college? Hi, Carlos. Hi, everyone. Um, so uh, I guess that's the beginning of a pretty weird history. I moved from marine biology at a small liberal arts college um, over to an art school to do illustration where I finally settled on user interface design as, a, as a focus for my art career. But was that like a, that was like the, the name of the program or is that something you, you made of it? No, it was, a, it was a new program that was being started at Art Center in the graphic design department, of which I was not a part, uh, by a bunch of um, MIT Media Lab teachers who came out in, oh God, I'm dating myself, 1993, and said, we need to create an interface design program at this art school because we believe the interface design world, which is going to appear when the internet takes off, is uh, part of the world of design. Okay. And so... What what was the what was the early thinking? Maybe like the the the, the role models you had back then, the, the foundation of you will of, of your education at that time. Sure. So uh, as part of that program, we studied a combination of things. So psychology, um, we studied film rhythms. So people like Len Lai. Uh, we studied um, information design. Uh, books like Tufty's work and some of the stuff Richard Saul Worman subsequently put together. Um, and then, of course, the, the standard design and, and product curriculum that was part of Art Center's heritage. Okay. And so you graduated, and you graduated in this cutting-edge degree that probably very few people understood um, in terms of how that should be implemented into product. Um, talk, what was that about? What was, share with us what, what that must early days in the career yeah, so it was, it was a pretty funny time. Um, user experience design was a, a new area. Uh, I had taken a couple of years off school to do my first startup, gone back to school to finish up, um, and then went and took it forward. I had done user experience and product at CitySearch and came out um, with a pretty unusual background in 1997, having already founded a successful startup. Um, wasn't quite sure what to do with it, but I knew I love startups, and unfortunately, I've never recovered from that. Hmm. Um, and so, walk us through that first startup then. Yeah, so the first startup was a company called City Search. Um, we decided to create an online city guide. Started in Pasadena, building a, a Java application. Sun had just released the Java specification, and, um, and then halfway through the business, flipped it to web after um, the web had taken off with Netscape's work. Um, and the business was about getting local businesses to put themselves online and it still exists today. It still gets a fair amount of traffic. It's not, not the biggest by a long shot anymore, but um, that, 
same local focus that you see with a lot of other businesses today. And so if, if, we, if we go back to, the, you know, for those of you that, that are using the Wayback tool um, to look up what the city search must have looked like back then, but if you go back to then, what, what were the early implementations of your thinking? Like, give us a, give us a few case studies within that first startup of, of how you thought through some key problems and, and how you dealt with the user interactions. It, it feels very cavemanish today, looking back and thinking, well, we decided we're going to think as the user probably does and we're going to imagine, I want something to do tonight and I want a place to eat tonight or I want to find a haircut somewhere nearby. And we imagined ourselves in the user's shoes and we um, built a user experience around that and made our assumptions for how they thought they'd want to go through that. And, and needless to say, um, without all of the you know, modern day focus on, on the user research and the user journey, um, found in, in, in a huge amount of cases we were wrong. So we think through the experience, build the experience, um, put the experience live, and then, and then um, be surprised when people didn't use it quite as we thought they did. So build it and they will come. Yeah, kind of like that, yeah. And so, when, when, I know we're going to be fast-forwarding a little bit here, yeah. time-wise, but when do you see, if that was 1997 roughly, right? Yeah. If, if you fast-forward to when that sort of thinking really started to die down, as far as customer journey understanding um, really started to, 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 to kick in, like when did that happen? Is that as of the last three years, the last five years? Oh, probably at least the last five or so. Eric Reese's, um, you know, book has really taken the the world by storm, and 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 the work that um, he and his colleagues have done have driven the level of focus on um, the user's journey and and developing the customer into everyone's mind. It's, yeah. it's it is it's the bible of startups today. So basically, if, if then if we go back, that means that from that period, ninety seven through you know maybe two thousand and ten or so, two thousand nine, yeah. you know that that old methodology of building um, in effect before there's any kind of journey understanding yeah a customer journey understanding probably affected a lot of some of the mistakes that you probably saw over the years uh, and, and, and it's probably quite painful to look back and think crap why did we do it that way right sure I, I, I think um, as well there's a big component of the speed at which user users have developed over that period of time. It happens very fast today, and I don't think anyone recognized how fast it was happening while we were doing it, because you have these very long build cycles when you have to, back in the day when you had to build a lot of the technology, today you can just patch a lot of the stuff together using APIs, and you're able to iterate um, on fully functional prototypes much, much faster than you used to be able to do. And so now you can go and get users' feedback in real time and make adjustments um, in, in very short periods of time without having to pin your entire hopes on some spec that you developed years in advance and then spent all the time building and then have to go reinvest in teaching people to use it that way. Yeah. Today, you can iterate on these things so quickly and the barriers to entry and the barriers to competition are so low that you can't risk not getting it right at the beginning. Mm. You have to get it right at the beginning. And so you need to you need to be in front of the users as quickly as possible. Yeah. So before we resume sort of the chronology of, of sort of your career, um, I want to ask you somewhat of a risky question in the sense that um, it, it sort of goes against the grain of, of, of what is considered uh, best practices today, right? Um, and it's to look back at how product development was done back then, mm -hmm. you know, city search time, that you think still has value or is actually was done better back then than it is today and it's something that 
maybe younger engineers, younger founders are not as in touch with that they should be because it actually does play a large part of the equation that, that, it, that it helps for other parts of product development and lifecycle. So I think going back that far would probably be probably be going back too far. I think the 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 look back that we have today is more of the sort of early mid two thousands era with the product requirements documents and the design requirements documents and the the waterfall development process. I think that's the first time there was um, best practice thinking around how to do product development. Prior to that, completely the wild west. Um, and, and I think the, in terms of looking back to that period, what needs to be taken into account, um, I think probably the one thing that hasn't really changed is you still need to have great ideas. It doesn't matter what your process is. It doesn't matter how much you learn about your user. You still need to think very, very hard in a very, very open way to find the one thing that user, users are really, really going to enjoy. There's no science to creating delight. Um, and that was as much of a problem then as it is today. Um, it, just today you have better tools to, to gather the information that you want to take into account when trying to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's get back on, on sort of the, the story where we left off with, with City Search. Sure. So what, what followed after that? Uh, after City Search, I went to... AT&T, uh, I worked for AT&T Labs, helped the CTO um, at AT&T explain to his telephone people what the internet was and how that was going to change things. I don't even know if I have any smart questions around that. It just seems so... We might be going back too far. The audience <laughs> may be falling asleep at this point. It's like, um, wow, <laughs> what do you say to that? Okay. Um, so once you were able to get the whole world to be convinced that the internet was or AT&T sure. at least so AT &T what, what else is that? yeah so so then I went back to Idealab which is a, a wonderful business that I've, uh, I had worked with in the past um, helped them start a bunch of companies in um, California northern and southern California um, then went to a, another startup where we did a, a marketplace for ideas a marketplace for great ideas trying to um make a move in the ad agency, marketing agency sector. Then the bubble burst, the big original bubble burst, um, which then sent me off to business school to, to learn a little bit more about um, what it takes to make a business run. Mm -hmm. Following business school, I went to uh, AOL, worked there for a couple of years for the Netscape brand. Um, and after that, moved to what was the, what were yeah. what, what and, you know the 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 book um, hard things you know by by the, the Andreessen um, Ben Horowitz and yeah. Horowitz crowd were uh, I can't remember where exactly your time at AOL and, and Netscape overlapped there. Sadly, I was right at the end. My okay. final bit of work at at, um, at AOL was to hand the Netscape brand over to the team they had brought on to um, to try and turn Netscape into a into a dig clone. Uh, mm. So it was the it was the uh, the end of Netscape um, oh. when AOL. Uh, it was basically the end of portals as a yeah. as a viable business model. Okay, cool. So then, what what happened after then? Yeah. So after that, I came back to London, um, helped uh, an old colleague start a business around secondary ticketing called Seatwave. Um, so we came back here, took that from idea to, um, you know, live on the market. Um, 
allowing people to resell their their concert tickets for uh, for a uh, you know a higher or lower fee than the original face value they bought them at six months previously. Yeah, and so with SeatWave, I mean, if we stick to some of the challenges around the product, yeah, um, what was the biggest uh, issue that you had? I mean, you know, I'm I'm sort of improvising here, but could it, you know? With, with an industry that's known for scalpers and yeah. all sorts of weird kind of sort of gray market type things, uh, probably trust was a big issue. Yeah. Right? Trust, execution. And, and how did you think through the, the product to overcome? So what were like the, the board of like priorities there and how did you overcome them? Sure. Um, so, so I would say trust is an important thing to call out because I think it's a big deal for everyone, whether you're B2C or B2B or B2B2C. Uh, trust is always super, super important. Um, it was very important in this case, and we had the standard tools available to uh, available to us, like guarantees, uh, insurance. We had put together a secondary ticketing insurance policy, which was fantastic until um, Michael Jackson canceled all his shows. Then, then it was a, kind of a problem. Um, uh, those were the main things around trust, uh, and then. Uh, we had a fairly straightforward roadmap of how to build the functionality, so that wasn't a super big challenge. But um, and with a, a really wonderful architect behind the platform, um, the challenge was then to innovate on the the ticketing sales um, with the product. And so that was with things like dynamic seat maps, um, just speeding up the view of how you pay for stuff, speeding up the view of how you choose your tickets, speeding up the efficiency of managing inventory. Um, they, they were not. Uh, major B2C product challenges. But walk us through some of these. I mean, you're just kind of throwing them out there and they probably make sense like in 2020 hindsight, but like it's not necessarily obvious where you would prioritize, you know, dynamic seat maps versus let's say uh, getting three major brands that could establish trust and working that into the the, the flow. So like how did, you know, maybe walk us through some of the thinking because I'm I'm presuming that some of that thinking is what's led to what we're going to cover a little bit later in your behavioral roadmap. Sure. Um, so, so one of the driving factors for the way we did prioritization was um, the actual functionality we needed to make a, a basic secondary ticket trading platform is already fairly, fairly well established um, by StubHub in the U.S. And so we had a we had some catching up to do to that functionality, um, and we weren't looking to create new experiences per se. We needed people to get comfortable that they could see the tickets that were available, the prices they could pay for them. So clarity was super important. Um, and then feel a strong sense of comfort that they were going to get what they paid for because these people were paying two, two, three hundred pounds for a ticket to, you know, Beyonce or U2 or whatever the case so be. So sort of inventory transparency, comfort, yeah. and, and, and the clarity of that. Yeah. Straightforward, clean experience, uh, reinforced at every step that we're behind you or we're along the way. And those are um, those didn't require a lot of technical development per se. That was more of the user experience and design side of things to make everything clean and simple. So when you say when you say those words, right? Like the, the I think as a neophyte in this, you know, as, as a fan of this, but not one that uh, is as well versed in it as you are. When I hear those words, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want that. I want clean. I want simple. Yeah. But what does that actually mean in terms of execution? Because, like, you know, you've just given me the priorities that you had in order to build a product that would convert uh, people who were on the fence, and then you throw in these adjectives that almost seem like black magic um, in how you execute them. So how 
what was the process that you went through to interpret clean, simple? Like, how did you take those three things you're trying to do, which you said was you know, clarity and transparency of, of, of inventory and the trust? How did you take that, multiply them with, uh, you know, uh, simple? And, and how did you make that an output that, that you could then pass on to whoever was building it? Sure. So I would say um, the first step is it has to, it has to feel right to you um, in t- just as an end user. And it's, it's impossible not to put yourself in the end user's shoes as much as um, it's a challenge to uh, try to judge everything from your own point of view. Um, the information that you want to see needs to be there. And, and you bring your users in and you show it to them and you ask them, do you see what you want to see? Um, you can look at it analytically after the fact and see where users click to validate all of this. Um, but it's a, a basic set of needs. You imagine yourself in the user's shoes. You imagine their entire journey. They're thinking about, I would like to go to a show, a particular show that I heard about, and they heard about this show in some newspaper. They're looking for a, um, a reasonable way to go. They're searching on Google. They're landing on your website because you were able to get their click. Um, and what's the first question in their head? Where's, where's that artist that I'm looking for? Or what is the show that I want to go see? So making sure all that information is available. All the different places YouTube is going to be performing in the UK. All the different shows, all the different dates. Not forcing them to do a lot of extra clicks. So putting all that information all on one page. Um, allowing them to make their first choice, which is which show they want to go see. And then once they know which show they want to go see, putting yourself in their shoes, imagining what's their next question. Well, my next question is, where am I going to sit and how much do I have to pay? Um, So a a fairly straightforward choice process with a pre-existing analog comparison. You call up Ticketmaster and you say, I want to go to this show. Um, I want to sit in a a close, medium or or far seat. and, And this is the... Yeah, the, they're going to tell you what price you're going to pay for those seats. So making just sh- sure that you've you've created the analog com- the comparison to the analog experience very transparently on the site. Okay, um, so if I, if I if I pause you there and put myself in the shoes of somebody who's very technically oriented but not very aesthetically oriented, mm-hmm. um, this makes sense. Like the, the choice process yes. makes sense. I can understand that. I can take an analog uh, process and then map it into kind of what I think this should happen and I could definitely create a quantitative process and a series of triggers that would then allow me to track the metrics as to whether I'm hitting the, that analog or or at least my goal of what I'm expecting during that choice process. Sure. The bit that is missing and that I want to see if you can elaborate on for, for the listeners is when you said words like clean. I have complete analysis paralysis when it comes to when somebody says that because whilst I can visualize everything you've just said in terms of a process, I can't exactly visualize how to lay it out, you know, whether it's garish, whether it's not, what colors, what, and I'm not talking about just design here, I'm talking about like, how do you organize this information visually, how do you go about, once you have that choice process, how do you organize it visually and make sure that you're not effectively tanking the results that you're getting for, because of some poor decisions about where things should be in that choice process? Sure. Um, well, what you're, what you're asking me to do is, is to an extent, encapsulate a, a lot of what the, the, the sort of fine art of, of visual and, and layout design um, entails. And I would say as a, as a uh, 
what you're essentially doing is you're abstracting your, yourself from the information and you're saying, um, what do I care about? What do I want to see first? What's the most important thing to me? And you're just imagining this in your head. And, and if you say it's um, where I'm sitting and how much I'm going to pay for that, um, then the, the answer you have right there is those are the most important things to make clear on the page. And so they, they probably need to be bigger. They probably need to be higher contrast. They probably need to be um, not surrounded by a lot of things that would distract from them. They need to be the things I see on the page. So um, you, you would uh, probably adding a, a user experience component to that, you'd add something like a point of reference. So do I have a sense of um, continuity in my experience through this site? And so that would point back to things like, even though I clicked on Beyonce's show in the um, MEN arena, um, are you keeping Beyonce MEN arena visible to me in a prominent position so I have continuity of my experience. So that's the user experience side of things. And then on the visual design side of things, um, is it, does it very clearly say seat location? Does it very clearly say price? And are, are those numbers arranged in the way that I would normally ex think of them? So what's in my head? What's in my head is price goes from low to high or high to low. So always in a, in a, um, in a continuum. Um, what's in my head is that seat location. Um, I'm used to thinking them of them in seat blocks. And so tell me which blocks they're in and tell me if they're in floor or, or mid-level or high. So at least replicate that part of the analog experience digitally. And then perhaps you go a little further and try to innovate in that experience and actually show a visual of the seat map and make that correlate to what people are seeing. So. Okay, so, so it's, it's just more of taking the analog experience and, and converting it into, digi into digital. What's in your head? What's important to you? Make sure that's what's displayed on the page in the clearest possible way. Okay, so I, I think you're starting to add more fidelity, more layers to that skeleton of choice process that we created. And I think we'll revisit that when we go deeper into the behavioral roadmap that you're proposing. Great. So, But I think for, for the listeners, hopefully you're starting to get some of the same feeling that I'm getting, which is this is a little bit of a black magic and black, black arts in a way, but, but you know, there is a process behind it. And, and hopefully we can get down to some of the sort of very tangible to-dos uh, as you embark on this journey. So after SeatWave, what, what happened? After SeatWave, uh, I went to eBay. I worked for the uh, Trust and Safety Group and ran the, the uh, payments policies for eBay for a couple of years. Um, so I worked with PayPal pretty extensively, worked on projects across uh, eBay Europe, um, and uh, I had a great experience. eBay provides a, a wonderful service to a lot of people, and so that was, that was really fulfilling. So, um, ironically, I just sold two things on eBay not only 48 hours ago, and it strikes me that it is a company that has, to put it nicely, has stuck with convention, maybe, uh, rather than innovating on on how to better get things uh, through the pipe in terms of uh, listing and selling. And um, I'm curious as to what, what your view is there, what, what your opinion sure. is on that. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone uh, that was looking at eBay at the time or is looking at eBay today, um, it, you know, anyone who's sort of in the industry digitally savvy is going to feel like, well, eBay doesn't look like 
necessarily one of these more advanced startups that I'm seeing in this part of the experience or that part of the design. Um, and I think the big learning there is inertia. E eBay is big. Um, and I'm not talking about the inertia of eBay as a business, though, you know, with, with um, as a really successful business, you need to be careful about what changes you create and what kind of shockwaves that can send through your um, through your users, but inertia of the users. And people got used to using eBay. They were used to seeing certain sorts of information displayed in certain ways. And um, it was an endless cycle of um, launching things that we tried to make work better um, to find that for some portion of our audience, it completely ruined the way they were used to looking at things. And so the inertia of, of, of users, um, when they become uh, accustomed to an experience that you're sharing with them, puts a huge drag on the things you're able to, you're able to deliver on or, or innovate against. But well, that brings up a very good um, question around uh, how much control do you actually have in this process to really innovate once you have conventions set by somebody else? You know, if a competitor, you're launching a, a product in a space where a competitor has set convention, can you really go against that grain? I think you absolutely can. Um, and so, I mean, eBay's situation is not the same situation that, that a new startup is going to face because they don't have quite the user inertia around their product that, that eBay was facing and, and still faces today. Um, but the, the advantage that you have uh, as, as a startup is you can reference those other actions that um, people are taking with alternative products, let's say Freshdesk versus Zendesk. Um, and you can say, our, the thing you're doing on that product is different in my product in this way. So you can reference things people are familiar with and they're familiar with those behaviors and you can compare them. Um, and you can say, and, and with mine, it takes you less time or with mine, it costs you less money or with mine, it, um, I don't know, you know, makes you have more fun with your friends or whatever the case may be. So I think um, that inertia in a competitive sense, um, and eBay has got plenty of competitor examples that will bear this out, um, also create opportunities for you to innovate against those things that people are already used to in other cases. Hmm. And what, what in the role that you had, which was actually, I mean, I, you know, I want to explore what it, what it was and what it entailed, but it involved a lot of the very critical points that um, as a seller, which I, I sell stuff on eBay, um, you know, it's the kind of stuff that's always the scary bits, you know, like the, yeah. the payments and how to integrate. So what, what pressures did you have and how did you manage um, all the aspects having to do with uh, innovating uh, with the boundaries that you've just explained? While I was at eBay? Yeah. Um, so, so I worked in payments. And so payments had a bunch of tricky things. So for example, um, inertia in payments. Uh, in Germany, for anyone that's worked on German payment system, um, uh, there's, there's great security throughout the entire German payment infrastructure. Um, and people are used to not paying any fees when they make payments. And so to convince German buyers and sellers um, that it was better to use a, a payment structure that provided greater security but cost a little bit was um, virtually impossible um, and, and, and so, so hard to sell that, um, you know, dealing with the regulatory agencies in Germany was like half of my job um, because when people would complain, 
um, the regulatory agencies had to get involved. Um, so, so that it was hard to innovate in, in, in that sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's another example of it in, in France. Um, people were used to uh, selling in a sort of a gum tree way, where you you don't pay to list, and um, you basically just make a deal with the person over the internet and send send the object one way or another and receive your payment or not. But but the website is not responsible for it in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and eBay tried to push forward in that no fee consumer to consumer um, selling model in, in another European market and found that frustratingly um, when people got screwed over they blamed eBay whereas if you ran the exact same test to the exact same comparison against another brand where they didn't uh, you do the exact same actions people didn't blame the brand they blame blame themselves when things went wrong um, and that's just because there is an inertia around people's expectations of the brand. That even if I wasn't paying for it, if anything went wrong, it was their fault. So it's another example of customer inertia. Um, sometimes very hard to get over. So yeah, with regards to the the, the eBay um, experience and and payments, it sounds to me like international obviously is one of the challenges. Maybe early stage founders don't necessarily have to tackle uh, directly, but definitely the prejudices of the customer base play a huge part. How much, um, how much research do you encourage startups uh, to, to make about these kinds of behaviors locally? I don't think you could really do too much. I mean, especially at a startup, your user and what they do is your business. And um, you cannot afford not to understand what they care about. So it would seem that the some of the projects you were you were given were almost impossible from the onset. And with that knowledge, it would seem like some of these, so is that, is that was because it was a denial there? Like we can convince these customers or, you know, was that ambition or I like to call it an ambition more or hope rather than, <laughs> a, rather than a denial. We were certainly fully aware of the challenges. Um, and, uh, and yet at a, at a scale like eBay, um, you, you're in a position to try and change those accepted norms. And have you? Do you have any examples? Maybe not necessarily just eBay, but others where, through the product itself, you've managed to overcome um, inertia, customer inertia. I th- I'll give you an easy one. I think I, maybe this isn't the best example, but I do think like iTunes did that for music piracy. I think by setting the price at a buck a song and having the product be very easy to use and discover music and buy things on a per song basis, it shifted this sort of large move uh, to, to piracy and it started what is now effectively the, the, that, that form of consuming music. And it's a very simplistic one, uh, but it's the one that came to the top of my head. But maybe more specific to, to some of the companies you've worked with, what, what examples have you seen of, of how a product can fundamentally change a customer so that the point being that a founder can take a punt hey, these guys did this, uh, they broke a lot of social norms that would have otherwise prevented this from working. Do, do you have any of the, those kinds of examples? Sure, I would say there's probably a, a lot of examples, and you know, Apple being, um, be, being one of the greatest of all time of, of getting behaviors to change by saying, it doesn't have to be this way, it can be better. Um, Gosh, from a news standpoint, uh, you know, I think F- Facebook has um, done a great job in their feed of um, 
saying you don't necessarily need to always go to a news site to see news. You can start to see stuff that you care about because it's what your friends care about. Um, so I think they've changed the, the norms of news consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Twitter's done um, a huge amount in that arena as well. Um, Okado, as a parent, I would have to say, for anyone lucky enough to live in the UK with kids um, and, and, and um, be able to do shopping online with a lot of the online delivery options that are better than anywhere else in the world that I've seen, um, those are wonderful uh transformative experiences that free up a huge amount of your time. And so th- th- maybe that's a good sort of transition point into sort of the next role that you had, which was yeah. at, at Time Out. Because one of the one of the things that, you know, with, with print and, and print media and then also now digital um, uh, content is moving people from maybe the way that they consume um, uh, media into a different format and the transition there and the adver- advertising there and the challenges of taking that uh, that behavior whether it be reading it in the tube or the weekend and migrating it on so how was that when you started there what was the the number one thing you were tasked to do there so number thing number one thing I was tasked to do there was to get time out as a global business off of a bunch of disparate um, platforms around the 37 cities it was in the world and onto a, a single global platform, um, which would allow the brand to just dramatically reduce its its um, technical operating costs and its ability to, to innovate technically. Um, so that, that was the main task there, was to, was to move over to a new platform. Um, we did some experiments around content consumption, um, but Time Out has a really strong brand, particularly in London. Uh, their their strength in their branded um, authorship um, was something that the, the business wasn't, um, is and, and maybe even still is not quite ready to give up. Hmm. And so what was day one like? Day one at work? I had to write a long document to explain what product was as I've had to do in a few places in the past. Um, so a lot of internal resistance then? Um, or just not really cognizant of what it, what it took? I, I wouldn't say necessarily internal resistance, but I think there was a lot of education to be done around um, uh, a role in the business who, who um, is at its, its very heart a representative of the user with the, the 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 mandate to try and connect the user to the business, um, and that, that's a that's essentially what product is is trying to connect the user to the business um, and make sure to to I guess empower and bring to life all the other parts of the organization that need to work well together to to make the most of that. Okay, and so how long were you there for? Couple of years, couple of years, and, and sort of at that end of, of that time, like what what were the the key sort of accomplishments with with starting with that bar where it sure. was? Like what what did sure. you manage as a, sort of the man who introduced timeout to product? What was what kind of quantum of of improvement can a company expect with having somebody take that form of leadership? So I I think um, bringing product into the organization t- typically. What happens is um, product take steps in between the development organization and um, the other organizations that were previously giving it instruction. Um, that was certainly the case with Time Out. Um, 
uh, one of the things product often does is it tries to streamline the work that goes through um, and create some, uh, I, I don't want, um, create some rhyme and reason uh, and um, I guess activate the development team into the, against, you know, towards the user, just like it tries to activate every other department towards the user. Mm -hmm. and, and so how did that play out by sure. the time you left? So uh, we got the platform done. Um, we rolled the platform out and did some pretty massive content migrations for about nine cities in five different countries. Um, and so now it's just, a, or, you know, since then it was just a matter of then moving all the other sites onto the new platform. Um, it enabled, you know, any, any change done for any one city to immediately become available to all the others that were on the platform. So I think that was a pretty significant change technically and, um, time out, uh, was nearing the end of its, um, nearing the end of the time when it was okay not to have a global platform and so timeout needed to get that done um and so that was done new mobile app out ipad apps out um bunch of technical re-architecture around creating an api against the content which have uh, has allowed timeout to do a bunch of things since then hmm. and and what what did they see in terms of success from that um, so, like, how did how did you measure product success really yeah. as, as a function of that? So, I, I think so. For for a global platform standpoint, um, enabling all of your uh, franchise partners to take advantage of the new stuff without them having to pay for a whole bunch of technical development is a pretty big deal as a franchise business. Um, being able to bring new cities online in a matter of I don't know, maybe weeks or a couple of months rather than a, a huge buildup that was required previously, mm -hmm. being able to fill them all with content, all the tools being available, being able to train everyone up. Um, so Timeout's ability to grow geographically was uh, dramatically improved. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, user consumption, I don't think there was a, a huge uptick um, in in, in usage as a result of that, but it wasn't really focused on that. It was more about enabling the business to... Um, Just get really... Well, to survive, first of all, and then and then to be able to continue to grow. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so I think uh, the, the listeners now have a pretty good idea of, of who Taylor, the, 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 the guy, is and, and the history that shaped, to some extent, the, the, the things that we want to talk about, which is your, your behavioral roadmap... Um, and, and a lot of the content that you're going to be putting out soon regarding um, the behavioral roadmap. Um, and so for, for those of you that are listening, we're going to divide this podcast into several um, different podcasts. So stay tuned for the, the next ones. Uh, but what we want to do is, is two things. One, uh, Taylor, maybe you can walk us through through the, the summary of what the synthesis of all these years of working with these companies has led to. So maybe just an overview of, of what what the behavioral roadmap is and then over the course of the next two podcasts we'll cover um, the, the the four parts that you've outlined that make up the behavioral roadmap and just for those that are listening those four parts include the customer journey uh, creation the building your customer journey the motivations and rewards for the behaviors uh, the validation of your assumptions and the prioritization uh, of the behaviors so the roadmap effectively that prioritizes behaviors so what what uh, we'd like to do then is um, uh, maybe if you can give us a quick overview, Taylor, of, sure. of what this is, and then we'll, we'll we'll wrap things up for this 
first podcast. Okay, sounds good. So um, the thing that uh, in, in working with the startups at Seacamp and in other startups I've worked with, um, and looking back at my history in product, um, everyone's oriented around features. The, the investors want to know when the feature is getting done. The developers want to know what features are going to get built, and and the CEO um, wants to see what's going to happen in what order. Um, the challenge that has always been the case with this is these feature sort of feature blinder, feature oriented roadmaps um, tend to abstract the user from what you're doing. And, and what, I, what I really wanna see happen more is I wanna see the business get closer to the user. And I think that's the core function of product. And so what I'm advocating is a reorientation of road mapping away from a list of features and back towards um, the behaviors of the customer. So identifying, understanding, validating, and prioritizing the behaviors of the customers um, because it's what the customer does that is your business, especially at a startup. Um, and so refocusing on that core activity, I think, has the opportunity to significantly improve um, the way we get our work done. So in effect, you're redoing a, a, a somewhat of a well-established view on how to build a roadmap around features. I want to launch this thing. It has to have this functionality and you want to replace it with, I want my customer to behave this way. I want my customer to be able to do that. Yes. Um, rather than say, okay, everyone, these are the different features we're going to launch and work on in this order. And you have some sort of step down Gantt chart format. Um, it, it, it activates the team more to say, okay, this is what our, these are the things our customer cares about. And they may or may not be activities that happen within the contents or within the confines and experience of your particular product. They may happen before, they may be conversations that happen midway through with their colleagues, or they may happen after they've walked away from their computer. But these behaviors are so fundamental to the customer's use of what it is you're trying to provide them that understanding them and, and, and addressing them at the opportunities that you have, which are within your product, um, have a much higher likelihood of getting them to do, do things, to do the things that you want them to do and to drive the numbers in your business that you want to see go up. Cool. So we're going to, uh, over the next two podcasts, we will uh, go deeper into each one of the four parts that make up the, the, the behavioral roadmap. Uh, but maybe um, since we've covered a lot of the history that has led to this thinking, yeah. um, do you have any anecdotes of when this clicked? Like when in your head you were like, ah, this is what we've all been doing wrong today. Sure. Um, so I was uh, talking with, with one of the startups and they were saying, well, our KPIs are visits and, and purchases and, and NPS. And I said, well, take me through your user journey. And they walked me through their user journey. And they said, this part in the funnel between signing up and paying, we get a really big drop off. And they're selling something that costs a fair amount of money. It's over 500 pounds, their, their, um, their typical basket. And I said, well, what happens between those two steps? And they said, well, I, I don't know. Um, and, and I said, well, you're talking about a lot of money, so they're probably going and talking to their partner, their financial advisor. They're probably going and having a conversation with someone who was, who was not sitting in front of your product. He said, yeah, well, they probably are. I said, well, then that, that right there is a behavior we need to identify, um, and that is going to drive NPS if we say, and now that you've looked at this information, here's a way for you to um, share this with someone else, um, 
via a printout or an email link or what have you, that's going to both address that fall off in the funnel and address NPS because that's literally the net promoter score. It's, that's the recommendation from one person to another. And so calling out that key step and addressing that step directly um, as something between two steps in your funnel um, is a really important stage. And, and then I realized this, this um, rhymed with a bunch of other things that I had seen happen in these, in these meetings and that there might be some value here. And so what, what was the suggestion there? Was it to build a um, specific part of the product that enabled that user to go and then have a chat with that spouse? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at minimum, recognizing that it was going to happen. So you could say... A pop-up that says, go talk to your wife now. <laughs> so, so that'd be the most direct way to do it. Perhaps not, not the most effective, but you never really know. That could have been it. Um, uh, giving them an opportunity to forward this via email. Um, giving them an opportunity, at least recognize that it's going to happen. Now that you've done this, you probably want to have a conversation with your advisor. Here's a convenient printout you can use, or you can forward it to them directly. Um, we look forward to hearing back from you. And then perhaps in the follow-up emails, when the person hadn't come back within, I don't know, two, three days, whatever the case may be, hey, how did it go? How did that conversation go? Um, was it a doesn't sound right for us? Did they Were they concerned about you know any of these five things? We can really help. You know, come back and that sort of thing. So addressing that it happened um, in, in some way and the hypothesis is that will, that will um, affect their behavior to move past the next step. Next step. Excellent. Um, well, thanks, Taylor, uh, for that. And uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, this is part one of three different podcasts that will delve into the, the, the behavioral roadmap and hopefully you got an idea of who Taylor is and, and the experiences that have led him to, to sort of put this, this model for, for building product roadmaps uh, forward. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have some content up as well that will be useful for you to visualize a lot of this stuff too. So until next time, guys, uh, thanks for joining. Thanks, Carlos.